Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is not a diving podcast with Scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving Podcast. And this week on the show, we have Tim Exile. He is someone who I met for the first time back in 2007 when I moved to Berlin. Uh, as we mentioned, he moved over around the same time. Well, I guess it's been a, a steady stream of people moving from London to Berlin and it is still going on now absolutely but yeah I moved over 2007 he did too and he's done all sorts of things in music uh he started off on Moving Shadow back in 99 so we talk a little bit about jungle drum and bass stuff in the conversation and since then he's been a prolific releaser of music also a software designer he's worked for Native Instruments and designed his own stuff as well He's released albums on Planet Mew and Warp Records. So obviously we talk about albums, as we usually do on the show. And most recently, he has been running Endless, which is a music platform which basically enables remote collaboration between musicians using a bunch of custom design tools and all sorts of other cool methods of collaboration. I would definitely recommend anyone to check it out it's on endless.fm endless with three s's platform has also made a pivot recently into the web3 space which we discuss at length in the conversation i've talked about web3 a little bit on the show before but this is the first time i've really had the opportunity to dig into it in a kind of meaningful way Uh, so um yeah if you're rolling your eyes at the mention of it sorry but uh i think we um we get in some in some details that you might find illuminating so apologies but no apologies on that so yeah i will be back 
as usual, after the conversation, talk a little bit about release news and all that sort of stuff. Just before we get into it, my weekly appeal for ratings and reviews, wherever you're listening to this podcast, it does make a difference, absolutely. Join us in the Discord via the link in the show notes. If you've got anything to say about it, or get me on Twitter, alternatively, at Scuba Official. Instagram is also Scuba Official. And also follow the Spotify playlists, which contains much of the music discussed on the show. Uh, so, without any further delay, here is Tim Exile. Tim Exile, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Very well. How are you? Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm good, thank you. Uh, where are you at the moment? I am in the Endless office um, in East London, just near London Fields, near Oval Space, actually. Does that count as the uh, the startup triangle in London? I think it, it probably pr- doesn't, does it? No, <laughs> I don't. Uh, no, I don't think so. It's more the kind of um, lifestyle business quadrant. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that makes sense. Um, All right. So basically, I've got a a million questions written down here, which don't really fit into any coherent sort of structure. So I'm going to improvise my way through this, which is um, which is probably quite apt, given uh, given the nature of your work these days. Yes. So um, (laughs) (laughs) maybe maybe just to kick off, you can just give us an idea of what you do now i mean i think quite a lot of people listening to this will will be familiar with your music and and your kind of broad career trajectory but like what are you doing right now and what is endless and um yeah why should people know about it so right now i am well i'm the i'm the founder of endless that's endless with three s's dot fm um and i always tell people that i'll call myself the ceo once we make more money than we spend um but then (laughs) (laughs) a lot of people say well um uber doesn't have a ceo etc etc so anyway um i am the the um primary point of responsibility for running endless um which is a live collaborative music creation platform um which allows musicians to gather in these jams which are kind of like music's answer to chat groups where you can share um riffs with three f's which is our kind of proprietary short form music format that's got up to eight stems and they loop and you can pull these riffs out of the um a jam uh, you can remix layers you can add layers uh, you can change the levels etc and send them back so it's kind of like a, it's a jamming platform um what it is today is um, it's it's really we spent the last you know four or five years really focusing on the creator tool side of it just to make it a really fun um, intuitive and spontaneous uh, musically creative experience um, and we're um, about to launch into this. Uh, basically adding the kind of the discovery and curation and listening and collection component which is always part of the plan um and uh, that's you know that's coming in the next couple of months which is really exciting because i i think um well to go back a bit further into my past um i started out as a musician i started out producing writing music in the way that is still kind of the the most prevalent way to do it today which is in uh, DAW dragging round blocks on the screen arranging music um thinking what it might sound like when you hit the space bar and then you hit the space bar to press play and it doesn't quite sound like how you wanted it um 
and I, you know, I, I like my music spontaneous. Um, and I've always thought that um, the way the music industry has evolved in the last 150 years has kind of killed off spontaneity in music. And um, my journey as a musician has always been towards this world of spontaneity. Um, I kind of fell. Let me, sorry, let, let me just jump in there and, and ask you to expand on that uh, one point just a little bit. Um, you mentioned that the, the way the industry has, has developed has, has killed our spontaneity. I'm presuming you mean sort of like the development of recorded music there specifically. Um, am I right in that? And then, yeah, can you just expand a little bit more on that point? Yeah, totally. So when, um, you know, 150 years or so ago, when Edison first recorded sound, um, it's suddenly you had this um, ability to take a single music performance and duplicate it many times. I mean, it didn't happen overnight, but um, an entire kind of tool chain grew up around the ability to record music. And then people um, found ways to play the music back and um, then to create multiple copies of that music and then distribute distribute it and then sell people all the kit to actually listen back to these things in their homes today, like all of which we take for granted in our daily lives um, nowadays. Um, and, you know, it's brought us um, amazing things. Like we have an amazing catalogue of music um, which we can now um, basically say, Alexa, play Spotify. Actually, she was going to start playing now. No, Alexa, <laughs> stop. Um, <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, you can we can listen to um, uh, endless, <laughs> um, really high-quality music, um, but which we have kind of no relationship to. Uh, and it just sort of fades, you know, it becomes commodified. And this is what was always... This was kind of like always going to be the end point of a music industry that was predicated on large profits from um, distributing as many copies of the same thing to as many people as possible. It was always going to end up commodified. Um, and, it, you know, in on that journey over the last 150 years, um, it has, you know, it's created a quality race. So in order um, for you to have a chance at selling a million copies, your music has to be damn good. Um, and the technology you use to create that music has to be damn good and complicated and give you all the options you need and all the plugins and signal chains and mastering options. Um, so it's kind of created this, yeah, it's a quality race. So, you know, the, the music we listen to today is of an incredibly high quality. Um, but that has been at the expense of, let's say, spontaneity, relevance, um, you know, sort of context, all these things that, that actually um, allow the things that allow us to kind of build relationships to things that, that mean a lot to us. Um, you know, in the way that like, you know, when you're a kid, like, your comfort blanket means so much more to you than some kind of like fancy Gucci tailored thing. I don't know, spitballing here, mm, but sure. um, you know, re relevance, relevance, meaningfulness, um, context is one of the big things that we've kind of lost in the industrial revolution of, of everything. I would say. Okay, so so just sorry again to jump in. When you say um, that music is of a high quality, you basically mean technical quality in terms of the way it's made, it was produced essentially, and that's what you're getting at when you talk about commodification. I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah. Is that fair? Yes, but then but then also stylist. Although stylistically, it's kind of. Um, 
music has evolved um, to be hooky, basically, because if you want to sell a million copies, um, it needs to sound great on all the systems and it needs to be hooky and recognisable. So I suppose, um, you know, it's also, it's also been at the expense of um, music that's challenging um, or provocative or um, maybe hard to discern what's going on. You know, things that need a few passes to really get your head round. Yeah, okay. Um, so, okay, we're, we're getting into the weeds a little bit here, but I'm, I'm, I'm keen to uh, I'm keen to explore this a bit further. Um, how, so how do you, I mean, I, everything you've said does, does resonate and I, I definitely agree. I guess the, the, the question I would have really is, like, to what extent does this sort of more recent commodification of, of music in the way you described, I mean, to what extent has that departed from, like, musical trends of the past? I mean, maybe before before the recorded revolution or before certainly before that became like the own well, the way of consuming music and, and, and making music like so for example like you know trends in i don't know for example opera writing up to the you know early 20th century how do you define like how do you sorry how do you distinguish between like the the kind of trends which drive the way music is made today and those previous kind of forces yeah it's a good question um i mean i think the the so there's another dynamic that has evolved in the last kind of 20 maybe 30 years or so which is um what happened when internet connectivity came around and um i think the the combination of kind of industrial media and internet connectivity meant that basically the the forms that we were used to um kind of getting our heads around understanding for example you know like the operatic tradition um evolved over hundreds of years um and you know there's a there's a lineage um of uh the 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 form of operatic composition that that it's quite easy to track over a, a, an arc of like a few hundred years um whereas uh, you know genres today um for you know the forms evolve so quickly um and i think one of the re- you know that industrialism did kind of accelerate that to an extent um but i think what really accelerated it is just the dynamics of um internet connectivity and the the only real value that that these kind of internet social network platforms could really deliver was the attention um the attention of the people who used those platforms um which meant that um, you'd need the platforms needed to be optimized for um, a constant um, input of new ideas, new content, new things to keep people coming back. So, um, you know, you see on 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 TikTok today. TikTok is like the most ascendant social media platform right now, um, and it's the whole way that the, the whole dynamic behind TikTok is like. You need to know the, na- the latest um, dance. Th- you need to know what the latest trend is, what the latest, ha- latest hashtag is, what the latest song is. Um, and these forms kind of, you know, they, they reference each other, but they move on so quickly um, because we're optimising for to, to just keep people coming back for more new stuff. Um, so th- I think that makes the, the forms that, uh, you just it means that forms are iterated and thrown away you know emerge and pass away so quickly that um well i don't know maybe it's just i'm old right. but <laughs> <laughs> no no i mean I, I think it's absolutely um it's a, a, an accurate observation for sure 
um and just just the pace of it is is crazy um okay so so um what you just described in there is is the way uh i guess what people call like the web 2 platforms affected things which brings us on to an area or an aspect of endless which is relatively new i think for the platform which is your move to your removing of the paywall and adopting a more of a web 3 framework and actually uh, to be honest like web3 was the thing that i wanted to have up the front of this discussion so we are kind of on track here i'm, I'm happy <laughs> to say <laughs> um so having talked about what endless is and before we get into the application of web3 on on endless let's just talk about web3 a bit more generally because um at this point there's a little bit of a culture war emerged around mm. it um particularly yeah. its application in music and I want to ask you about the reason why maybe that culture war has has emerged. But just generally, for people who are maybe you know, heard the term around and you know obviously heard of cryptocurrencies and the rest of it, maybe not haven't got their hands dirty, as it were, in the whole thing. How do you define it, and why is it important for you? I think the most important aspect, the thing, the you know, there's a, there's a lot of narratives going around about like Web three changes everything, and um, I think. A lot of those narratives, the reasons people say that it's going to change everything, I'm not necessarily sure that all of those are going to hold. But I think there are a few key points that do hold. Um, one of them, the main one is about the the impact of the actions that we take online are currently ephemeral. And so that harking back to you know my point about TikTok is that, and all these social media platforms, they're optimised to get you come back, coming back to pour in your energy and your energy basically gets converted into ad dollars and those ad dollars go um, to the company and they inflate the share price of the company and maybe maybe at most a few thousand shareholders get, um, you know, benefit from that. Um, and so what this means is that um, the, the value and the impact of what you do online is kind of being pulled out from underneath you like quicksand all the time. Um, and so I think the you know the biggest promise of Web three um, is that you will be able to own and curate um, and build all um, your identity online through what you do online um, and your relationship to the platforms, which today is basically you you rent your relationship with the platforms, you rent your own digital identity. If um, Meta decides they want to turn off um everything you know your profile and keep off the platform that is their prerogative um and they can do that and you have no recourse um what what's happening at the real base layer of web3 what's happening is that you're seeing this kind of division between um product platform and protocol which really i mean and the, the best way to explain it i think is kind of like the way a city is run so in london for example like right now I'm sitting in a, a rented unit inside some private property, um, and which is the endless office. Um, we don't, you know, we rent the office from our landlords, but then we go outside the building. Um, we go onto the roads, which are kind of public infrastructure. And, you know, there is um, there is like a governing body that looks after this infrastructure, but it looks after the infrastructure on a sort of not for profit basis as, as a as a public good. Um, so we know that like even, you know, something could happen, you know, we could be kicked out when our lease is up. Um, 
but we're not going to get kicked out of the of the city when you know we don't have that kind of arrangement the city the actual infrastructure of the city is is run um as a public good and that is the thing that's the big thing that really does change everything um and that in that the things that you do in the web3 world you can own on this kind of like decentralized infrastructure that is run as a public good and then on top of that there will be you know there will always be platforms that kind of connect people and um bring great experiences and kind of add value to all the stuff that people do all the things that people do online um but those platforms will actually kind of rent their relationship with us rather than us renting our relationship with the platforms and that's that's the thing that i just don't really see being talked about that much um and that, i think that's the thing that really gets buried in like the totally understandable um, uh, you know, people selling JPEGs for millions of dollars. I mean, I totally get why people think that's just ridiculous. Um, and I, you know, obviously there's been um, a lot of controversy about the proof of work chains and their environmental impact. Um, and there are, you know, nowadays there are, you know, proof of stake chains are well, comparable to any digital service in terms of their environmental input. I mean, not that I want to get into being an apologist because I, I don't think I don't want to be an apologist for Web three. I don't. I, I'd rather I'd rather like point people in the direction of like, but look, here's here's where the really good and important stuff. And you know, it, it's this change is happening now, um, and there are a lot of people building stuff that really do want to keep to this this kind of prom- like deliver the promise of web3 which really is like separating the infrastructure from the platforms and meaning that you really do get to own what you do and control what you do online and decide who gets to interact with it yeah okay um so basically I mean, what you've just described there is much more of a sort of underlying infrastructure benefit um like a sort of plumbing, underlying plumbing, I guess, perhaps as you could um, characterize it as. So let me ask you then um, about more specific applications to music. I actually had a tweet of yours written down, which is quite long, but I'm going to read it. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I tend to uh, go long. Was, Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> My hunch is the media industry skeuomorphic release model in Web3 won't stand the test of time by itself. Identity and association is Web3's superpower. It's inherently peer-to-peer slash two-way release models are still one-way broadcast mode. So can you unpack that for me a little bit and describe how you uh, see that playing out? Yeah, I mean, I think the the associative value, I mean, that's that's another another way of framing what's happening in Web3. Um, I think it's, it's, it's the end of the media industry. Um, and to, to underline this, um, like... Like Spotify and Netflix, for example, weren't the end of the media industry. They were just the um, they they kind of like precipitated the beginning of the end because um, they basically proved that the industrial media model doesn't really work for creators at all. Um, but the industrial model for like valuing media, you 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 value media by whether you get to access it or not. Um, and in the first instance, uh, you accessed it by um, wax cylinders and 
bits of Bakelite that actually have had physical waveforms etched on them and then that evolved over time to become magnetic and then optical um, and then we ended up where we are today which is you you know your access to media is a, a login to um, a server stack somewhere where you can listen to all the music in the world for 10 quid a month but it's still it, the the value model is based on whether you can access that media or not um, what the the web3 value model for media is um it completely different it's association so um because yeah well it's not because but the reason it works really well given the kind of um the economic and technical situation that this has kind of occurred in is that um you know media is abundant um, it doesn't make sense to try and stop people accessing it media, accessing media because the cost of people doing that are like vanishing. So, hey, why don't we make that a superpower? Um, and in the associative model where you're basically paying um, or paying or working or investing, uh, investing your energy in associating yourself with like, okay, so I, uh, you know, nowadays... Like right now, it's a very crude model of like, okay, I choose to associate myself with this JPEG or this piece of music and I will pay the creative that a, a certain fairly exorbitant sum of money in order to um, flex and say that I'm associating myself with that, um, that piece of content, if you like. Um, but that, the, that, that model is the thing that is going to massively scale and it's going to massively change as well. Because um, we will build our digital identities based on the things that we choose to associate ourselves with. Um, and we don't have to pay like one Ethereum or like $3,500 or $3,000, whatever it is. We, you know, that, that is going to seem, even in two or three years' time, that's going to seem nuts that people were doing that. Yeah, people will still be doing that, but it's going to be like this kind of weird luxury goods market. Um, what people will be doing um, is, well, for example, in the way Endless works, um, you you know you join these jams with people. So I could, you know, you and I could set up a jam. Um, we could make some riffs together on Endless, and we could invite a few friends to come and um, listen into what we're doing. Um, and the friends who were there could, let's say, oh, just you know, I, I like that riff. Yeah, I like that one. Okay, I'm gonna I'll, I'll spend a dollar on that. And that basically, that riff is then added to your collection. Um, but it's also you are added to the story of that jam. So you could, we could go back to that jam, revisit it in a few years' time, and scroll back through the history of it, and we could see who decided to collect those individual riffs. And that's going to be more about whether you showed up there, whether you lent into that process, whether you had proximity to us, than it did like whether you had um, you know enough um, dollars to afford that. So. That's where that's where things are going to change. I think um, you know the 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 transactional side of it will still be there, but it's going to be much more um, uh, relatable to the the kind of you know like ticket prices for a gig or merch prices or um, you know if you want to buy like a limited edition vinyl from your favorite favorite artist, you know it's going to be in like the one to fifty dollar range rather than the like one hundred to one hundred thousand dollar range yeah I, I think like just just the, the pure figures at this point put off a lot of people 
because it does seem slightly sort of distasteful. <laughs> I mean, frankly. Yeah. Well, it's just, it's completely inaccessible. And that's the thing, that's the thing where I like, I totally understand the anti-NFT crowd. Like, I, I, I absolutely do, because it is, um, it's like a whole bunch of, it's like the whole new kind of way of being online. Um, but you have to be a millionaire, really, to, to, to have any chance of, of playing in that world. Yeah, okay. Let me ask you about the application that you just described on Endless. So what you what you described there is a kind of a, a different way of participating, I guess, in music that hasn't really existed prior to this technology. Is is that fair for start? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean it's it's kind of weird because um you know, when we started building Endless, I I was clear that um we'd only really have um, kind of done what we'd set out to do um, when people could actually generate some, basically generate revenue from the the kind of the magic that they created on Endless. That sounds that sounds a bit cheesy, but like there is there is a certain magic when you show up to a bunch of people making music together in real time. And you know that it's happening then and there. And you know, occasionally, not all the time, but occasionally, it just comes into like the most perfect focus. And there's something so magical about that. Um, and so, you know, I was clear. It's like we we won't have done what we set out to do until people can actually kind of realise the value of that magic. Otherwise, it just becomes you know, it becomes hard for people to commit to keeping on doing that. And so, Web three came along at the right time. Okay, so my my question then was going to be. Like, I mean, I've heard more broad crypto skeptics, like, for example, in finance, describe crypto technology generally as being um, like a solution searching for a problem, basically, um, at, a, at a quite a general level. And you know, given everything you just said, I mean, do you think that there is a problem in music like now that crypto directly solves or is it something which is just going to slot into a kind of broad development of the way people interact with music and, and actually interact online as that whole thing develops? Yeah, well, I think there's kind of two levels that, to, that you can answer this. Um, the simple, the the first one is like the, the main narrative that you hear from these kind of like hashtag music NFTs people that are just um, talking about how music NFTs are going to pop off this summer, da 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 da, da. Um, And the narrative there is generally that, um, uh, you know, musicians just don't don't really make any significant revenue um, uh, anymore. You know, it, in the mid-noughties after um, the, you know, after the whole Napster thing and um, the, the crash in kind of recorded music royalties, um, you know, the live industry kind of stepped in. And so, you know, as you and I know, you know, we, we've, um, that's like, the, well, when I was last kind of touring as a musician, I mean, that was where the vast majority of my um, income came from, was touring, not not making records or selling records. Um, and uh, so there's a very strong narrative about bringing that, like, you know, recorded music is worth something. This is a way we can value it. Uh, that's totally true. But I think that's not the... That's not the real the real long term um, value. The real long term value is is kind of it harks back to the way we valued our our interactions before everything got industrialized. 
Uh, and I think it comes back to this this whole idea of you know meaning, purpose, context, um, and yeah, you know, kind of like the the value of our relationships. Like I was saying earlier, it's like being you know being there, showing up when music is being made, being part of that process, either as a creator or a participant. Um, that is actually what's really, va- you know, in terms of what is really valuable to, to, to you, to us, it's that stuff that, make, that makes you feel part of something. Um, and that, you know, the, the sort of confluence of industrial media and internet connectivity, and, you know, internet connectivity that d- didn't, it doesn't track how things move. There's no, the internet doesn't remember anything. It's literally just a network that will send messages in very clever ways and those messages will arrive, but the nodes on the network don't remember anything. So they don't remember the value. They don't remember the connections. They don't remember um, how things build up over time. And, you know, as humans, we do. Um, And we haven't, we've missed um, this in the, uh, you know, these kind of like double onslaught of industrial media and internet connectivity. We have lost this ability to like really um really kind of build things together at at, at a kind of like interpersonal at a sort of like you know dunbar's number 150 150 is meant to be the maximum number of people you can have in a in a community before you need kind of um governance superstructures etc um and uh, you know we've we've lost the ability to have these sub dunbar kind of vibe led communities because these two things have basically undermined it and and i think that is the thing um that we have an opportunity to 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 build to rebuild in a modern way okay so what that brings to mind from what well, i mean so the question that poses itself to me having listened to you say that, and all of and that a lot of that well all of that resonates frankly um <clears throat> but some of the criticism of of web3 proponents generally is that it sort of takes this kind of almost sort of utopian kind of view of it and it's i mean it seems on the face of it to be quite a cynical way of looking at it but some of the some of the ideas that get put forward in the space are do sound quite out there i mean i'm thinking of like for example um Balaji Srinivasan, or I can't—I never pronounce his um, surname right. <laughs> um, but some of the stuff he says about building alternative states and cities is the kind of thing you're talking about, but taken to an extreme, I guess, is is kind of what I'm getting at. And a lot of it has this kind of quasi-libertarian sort of like flavour to it. And listening to, you know, stuff like I mean, what you've described, but also some of the stuff that Matt Dryhurst puts forward, as potential scenarios where do you kind of place yourself on that kind of um i guess it's like the two ends of the spectrum of the kind of radical cooperative more left-wing leaning scenarios which present themselves and then going all the way through to the kind of more libertarian or or, or squarely militantly libertarian Mm. uh solutions i guess Where, 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 where do you where do you come down within that i mean per you know personally i'm i'm definitely much more left aligned um in in terms of but i it also you know it's those polarities are quite difficult to uphold 
these days um, with with all the compa- yeah, I don't think that the left right paradigm works at all in that in that framework I mean like I, I just characterize them in a kind of like left right way but the, but actually what they're getting at are very similar end goals right yeah I mean that's that's where it gets really weird I mean I've, I've often felt so I, you know I've I was um, up until I don't know kind of maybe early 2020 I was um, I was just like ah, blockchains, but it's a bunch of rubbish. You know, I wasn't. I'm just like the utopians go like it's going to change everything. I was just like yeah, 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 whatever. Um, let's just carry on building stuff in in the old model. But um, and I yeah, I, I got really into it kind of um, late 2020. Um, yeah, kind of uh, summer autumn 2020. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm starting off my thread now, but just think. Well, I suppose it's it's interesting to think about like how how I got how I got into it, and in a way, kind of like when I got into it, because I, I think I got into the whole like the NFT thing, and I I can't I almost feel sick when I say those three letters nowadays, <laughs> um, just because of like what it's what they've come to symbolize and what they come to just trigger in terms of like those letters actually really trigger people these days so i try to avoid saying it but um that's what that's what they were being called the back end of 2020 and i found it i found it fascinating and the kind of communities that were um that were operating then felt very much like this kind of leftish sort of utopian um you know very much this kind of circular economy idea um uh, that you could sort of build these um, kind of purpose-driven communities of creator collectors, um, and who somehow kind of like um, built these healthy kind of like city states in a way. You know, to um, to come back to that that Banerjee um, quote that you're talking about. Um, I, yeah, I'm. I'm. Well, <laughs> having having gone from being uh, you know i'm an excitable i'm an excitable guy like and that's kind of my job <laughs> um to get really excited about future potential and you know it's um uh yeah that's one of the things that that like you have to do to keep a project like endless um like moving forward um and I'm, i really enjoy i just enjoy getting excited about future stuff um but going going from this kind of like ah laser eye kind of like I went down the Web three rabbit hole and I realised it's the future, <laughs> um, going from uh, yeah getting from there to like um, actually building the case for what we're going to do with Endless, putting that case to the team, to our community, to investors, to the people who backed the Kickstarter. You know, there's like a ton of people to um, at least you know not everybody gets it, and some people freaking hate it um but you know the majority of people do seem to and and at least are at least are like very open to what we're what we're building um and then you know from that to like going up and setting a the setting up the foundation in switzerland for the for all the the tokens um and uh, get, you know, yeah, going- yeah, I want to. I want to. Sorry, if I could jump in, I, I definitely want to get into the specifics of what you guys are doing in it um, in a mm. minute. Let me just ask you one more question, more general question, before we get into that though, which is, um, we mentioned earlier the kind of cultural aspect of it, and you just mentioned there, like the way it, literally, literally just saying NFT will, will will trigger certain people in quite a visceral way, actually. Now, yeah. So I just wondered what, like, what 
what do you put that down to? Is it just because people don't like seeing large amounts of money like flying around, or is there some kind of wider thing? I mean, like I talked, um, like Surgeon was on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and we talked about like the, like the forces of conservatism in techno specifically, mm. and how it can be quite stifling creatively. And I wonder if the the same things are at play here. I mean, does that resonate with you at all? Yeah, it's it's really interesting that. Um, that you say, yeah, the, the C word, conservatism, because I, it does, well, to me, it manifests that way. Um, but also, like, I don't, um, I mean, much as, well, for, you know, from a sort of first-person perspective, um, it's it can be infuriating and sometimes just plain hurtful, you know. I mean, there, there are a couple of people have kind of cut me off because of what we do, you know, like friend people who I consider friends. Um, and... Uh, and that you know the stuff like that is yeah it's it's really painful um but on the other hand it's just like well you know what what good is it what good is going to come of it if i then start kind of trying to put some counter point of view to why everybody else is wrong and like you're wrong and i'm right and i think uh, you know always in in these things where you've got kind of two paradigms um uh coming together and you know a new, a new paradigm of um uh technical ability business models cultural models ways to organize like um all these different things um it's always messy <laughs> and and there's always conflict um and these conflicts never really get resolved because suddenly people f- realize what the right point of view is. It's more that um, the uh, you know the, the people who see the possibilities have to go out and build around those possibilities they see um, and make things that people can really like touch and feel and experience. And, and I think what well, one of the things I think there's a, there's a ton of stuff going on right now. Um, you know, one of it is just like the, the vast amounts of money is changing hands. I mean, you know, there's so much wealth inequality right now, um, and it is absolutely understandable um, that people feel like that. You know, the the bored ape crew is just like rich people getting richer. Um, I think that's true. I think that is what's happening. You know, um, uh, but I think another thing that's going on right now is that you're seeing a lot of these very utopian narratives um, and they are just narratives. And, and it, you know, to think, think of it from a kind of like from a psychotherapeutic angle, um, you know, if you have trauma to work through that, that holds you back and, you know, you, you realize that you've got patterns in your life that, that are holding you back um, and you want to break through you know, you go to therapy and you talk this out and you realise that the, the thing that is perpetuating um, all the difficulties are, like, the narratives around the trauma. Um, but if you take a moment to actually kind of go into, you know, to sort of revisit those original traumatic experiences and actually, f- you know, just feel the feelings and let them run through you, that's when things actually change. And I think we're seeing something like this happened right now is that we're very much in the narrative stage of of the, the you know the web three adoption like what it could be um and the problem with narratives is that um we all the narratives we hear we just map them onto our own stories um 
And until we actually have something really concrete that we can experience and have that kind of tangible sort of somatic experience of like what it actually means to us and how it actually feels for us, I think we'll be stuck. Um, and I think a lot of this, you know, particularly in, uh, you know, the online discourse on social media is just, I mean, again, these platforms are set there. Um, the, the, most, the most profitable thing that uh, the users of social media platforms can feel is anger, hatred, disgust, revulsion, outrage. outrage. <laughs> um, it's, it's the thing that will get people to come back. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that doesn't help. Um, and I think it doesn't help that there aren't actually that many um, really, and yeah, I, 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 well, I was going to say there aren't that many really sort of good, well-built products. And that's not true, but <laughs> that um, there aren't that many experiences that really show, that give people an instant experience just like why this is cool. Um right. It's it's being experienced in the abstract, basically, and people yeah. are kind of mapping their like insecurities and 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 uh, you know conservatism, frankly, onto that. I guess. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for saying that in like a hundred times less words than I did. <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Right, okay, so... um. Okay, so let, let's let's drill into the specifics of what you guys are doing in in with Web three on Endless. Then, I mean, you mentioned that you've been you've issued a token, and I'm I'm interested in in how you went about doing that and and how the whole thing works. So, give me a, a sort of bird's eye view of of how you went about doing it because it sounds like from getting interested in it in the second half of 2020 to like launching a token at the end of 2021, that's some you know, that's some some movement there. I, I'm fairly sure that the, the the first thing you did with it was a NFT jam session in April last year. Is that correct? Yeah. So, um, just uh, yeah, quick quick fact check. We haven't actually issued the token yet. All right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but that's at least you know that's the plan. And and um, you know, going through all the regulatory side of things, um, it's it's Byzantine. I mean, I thought like you know, running a Running a company that has investors with uh, who are uh, shareholders was one thing, but uh, you know, getting regulatory approval for um, a crypto token is is a whole other thing, uh, which is kind of good actually. Wow, because but the narrative there is that it's totally unregulated. So um, tell me about it. Yeah, I mean, okay, so this is this is something that I, I will like fairly brutally kick back against. Um, the you know, well, 
I don't, you know, I, I don't think, I just don't believe in flying under regulatory radars. In fact, I kind of believe in quite the opposite. It's probably just, kind of, you know, I'm a, I'm a bit of a good boy. I was always a fairly good boy at school. And, you know, I like to kind of be law, law abiding. But also, I don't want to drop anybody who will hold our future token in any shit. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, that's why... Um, basically, that's why we set up... Well, there's a number of reasons why we set up the foundation in Switzerland, but that's like all the best, all the top chains, um, they all have their foundations in Switzerland because basically their regulatory framework is just streets ahead of any other jurisdictions. Um, and it's it's clear, um, and it does, it does actually... It does seem to kind of protect people pretty you know everybody who's involved in these, in these ecosystems quite well but when you say sorry when you say streets ahead how how are you characterizing that um well um i mean obviously i haven't really um i this is the only this is the first time i've done this so i suppose i don't really have that much comparison but at least um i've been i've been uh like pleasantly surprised by all the people who've helped us go through all all the various loopholes that we've needed to go through they're really rigorous um and right. they're they're all they're all very keen to make sure that that everything um is categorized in the right way that all you know all the taxes are filed in the right way um uh, which is you know i i, I is completely the opposite from what i hear from all these kind of like ah oh, yeah it's a wild west <laughs> Um, there's no regulation. You don't. You can just like um, start a token, you know, mint a token, and transfer it to loads of people. No, you can't. I mean, it's it's as regulated as as anything else is. Um, but because of the tech behind it, there's there's a lot more, you know, a lot more of that that can happen programmatically rather than having to go through through lawyers lawyers, if you see what I mean. So if you get the the regulatory side of it right. Um, then you can have a, a really fast system for basically for kind of allowing people to own stakes in things. Really, that's what it comes down to. Well, from the from the token side of it, that's what it comes down to. That's what's important. Is that you know, whereas um, you know, the majority of the value that uh, Facebook or Google or Amazon um, delivered was delivered to like less than a thousand shareholders, and they all became like multimillionaires, if not billionaires. Um, yeah. Um, what is different about you know now we're launching a token? We will be giving a chunk of our token to the community like on day one, and the community can then also earn more of that token through interacting on the platform um, going forward. So uh, you know, an app by the time all the endless tokens have been distributed, like more than 50% of it will be um, earned by people who, uh, you know, won't necessarily have been bought. It will be owned by the community um, and they'll have earned those tokens through kind of building value in the ecosystem. And like, that's where it's completely different from basic shareholder capitalism, which I'm, I'm just like, I'm so, I'm so through with shareholder capitalism because it's so extractive. It's so extractive. Right. Okay. So maybe you could just explain a little bit about how, um, like, what has changed in the two approaches? Because I mean, previously there was it was just a, a, a you know, traditional paywall structure. You know, you pay for the product and you use it basically. Um, what you're saying, I think, I think the statement is 
we're building an economic model where we only make money when creators who use the platform make money. Yeah. So can you just break down how, like, how that works in practice? Yeah. So um, the, well, the first thing we're going to launch in a couple of months' time um, is this kind of, well, basically the, the endless platform as it is with these uh, jams um, that you can invite friends to create music with. Um, we're going to be launching basically a, a web player that's it's going to look not dissimilar to Twitch, actually, because the experience kind of is pretty similar to Twitch. Um, it's, a li- it's a live creative experience, um, and you see these riffs being made. So you literally see riffs coming in live, and you can browse through this history of riffs. Um, but uh, at um, any moment, you can decide, oh, I really like that riff, and I'll I'll collect it. And the... Whoever started the collectible jam can set the price them. They can set the price them to zero if they want. If um, which I think a lot of people will be doing in in the beginning because you know it's not really um, it's important not to make it all about making money. But um, the point is that you also can if you want to. Um, and so the way endless makes revenue in that model is that. Um, we basically become a, a, um, a band member in your band. So we get a small creator split every time um, something, you're, something you created uh, is, is sold or someone buys it. Um, we'll get a small cut of that. So we kind of, so we align, basically, we align, your, we align ourselves with your interests um, as a creator. And if you, know, if you don't want to make any money with it, that's fine. It's a public good. It's free. Um, you can use it for free. And, um, you know, our um pledge is to like is to keep that free um free forever uh i mean obviously the thing that we have to make sure is that there are enough people who do decide to um generate revenue from what they do that we can generate enough revenue to keep that going but um you know that's the uh the the yeah the intent anyway is like to keep it free because i think i mean well it's a very different model from anything that's ever gone before um you know the creator tools have always um required some kind of upfront upfront investment in both time and money um before you can actually get to start creating things um and and then you know you don't know if you're uh, you know you'll make any revenue from it but that you know for some people that's not the point um but i think what's important is to give people the power to express and try things out and see where it goes yeah um without having to be too concerned about like well you know am i going to spend 600 quid on the ableton suite or um you know do i um yeah basic basically you don't have to think about whether you want to shell out to use those tools sure okay right that all makes sense um it sounds like an extremely bold move and I hope it works out. Um, I, d- I just want to um, move away a little bit from the uh, Web3 stuff. Um, but st- sticking on Endless, because, I mean, as you said there, it's basically a creative and sort of collaborative tool for which like the barriers to entry are basically non-existent. Like anyone can pick it up and, and have a go, essentially. Um, and I, w- I wanted to talk about um, that as a general principle and the way, like the way that music creation tools have kind of evolved over the last twenty years, in in a way that's 
really served to like widen participation basically and i think the reason why so much get music gets made and released now is at least partly down to the existence of those tools i mean i would say primarily down to the existence of those tools i would say so um i was watching a ted talk that you did the one with the an instrument that can be played by anyone talk which i would advise anyone to uh look up on youtube it's quite short it's 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 good and very um <laughs> quite entertaining um <laughs> But I wondered, where, like, basically the, the question has long been in my mind, like, to what extent is the, is the widening participation and the kind of lowering of barriers to making music, to what extent is that actually a good thing for music? Like, I think you can quite easily make the argument that it's a good thing for people generally because making music is fun and good and healthy, as you, you make that point in, in that talk. But to what extent is it good for, like, art? Well, I think this, to an extent, the, the well, it all comes down to how we value media. Um, and I think, honestly, in the, from the industrial model, the access model, um, it, it's not a good thing for music because... Um, you get more people making more music of lower quality. So it becomes harder for people to rise above the noise. Um, it becomes harder to sift through the noise um, and it becomes more and more competitive. Um, but this is, this is from a very kind of industrial lens, uh, a, very, a sort of access-based lens. Um, but I think where we where the world of media is going in into this world of association um it is actually important um or at least the quality of the music becomes less important in a way because the context well it, you know the quality of the context becomes as important as the quality of the content so um you know, like 10 people, 10 good friends in a jam during a pandemic. Um, and they, you know, they used to get a chance to meet together. They used to, I don't know, do whatever. Um, and now uh, they can't because there's a pandemic on. And uh, But they can meet in a jam and uh, vibe out with each other, just, just doing stuff. And like some of it is cool. Some of it is not so cool. But all of it means something. And I think that's where... Um, you know the, the this whole kind of you know the like the instagram of music and democratizing music um has been uh, you know this narrative has been around for uh, a long time um and as you say you know there are lots of tools that deliver on that promise that promise that is good for people um but given the kind of outgoing models it's not good for music um aka it's not good for consumers um, but the world we're moving to is one where we're not really con consumers or creators, you know, we're participants. And actually what we're fostering is this kind of a sense of proximity, a sense of belonging, a sense of identity. And, and actually that, um, that, that is something very scalable. I think, you know, in, in, a, in a weird way, it's like that sense of intimacy is a scalable thing. Uh, but you don't scale that by like a million people all feeling intimate with each other. Um, you yeah, it's just it's just participation essentially. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
that's super interesting. That's super interesting. I hadn't even considered that as a <laughs> as a potential answer to that question. Um, so so then I guess like one of the things that's happened in music and is continuing to happen is like this kind of fragmentation of music scenes. And I guess is is that just us moving towards the kind of framework that you've just described, or is is that a separate thing? Do you think? No, I think that's exactly it. That that really that really is it. And and um, you know. Weirdly, in the in the sort of mid to late nineties, that that started to happen, um, and I think it it was kind of amplified in the early days of the of, of the internet um, before, basically before all the value got sucked into these like four huge multinational behemoths. Um, that you did have this kind of proliferation of scenes that kind of like existed at the end at the edge of the network and pulled people into these weird kind of like. Um, underground sort of cult things like um, and I think uh, yeah I think we're seeing more of that well, you know a lot of the world a lot of the kind of web 3 crypto world does feel like that and I think um, it's it's not um, it's not a coincidence that it feels like that I think that that nature of it is kind of baked into the dynamics that are possible with this te- technology that were never possible um, with um, you know the first version of the internet, where uh, the internet never never remembered anything. Okay, so what you're sort of describing, I suppose, is a re- like a, a sort of well, a, a musical landscape which is more in common with the kind of pre-industrial, yeah, or not not even industrial, but pre-industrial process anyway. So, um, I mean, and in in that sort of like pre pre twentieth century, let's say period. Like there was, you know, people, you know, you could learn an instrument, you could play around fire, whatever, like, you know, that's a very kind of like, you know, reductionist like, way of looking at it. But but in that context, you had great works of art, which stand the test of time, which are still performed now, lots of them, you know. So in the in the framework you've just described for like post today or that we're moving our way into, how do those great works of art, which will no doubt be... Um, you know, will, will no doubt occur on on some level. How how do they emerge, and how do they reach the wider consciousness in a way which means they stand the test of time? Yeah, well, I I think um, so. Maybe to to clarify, like I I don't think I don't think we're heading into this like completely decentralized um, landscape where um, <clears throat> the entire world is just this kind of like ball pit of like sub dunbar number communities <laughs> um right i th- you know there will there, there will there will be like superstructures there will be kind of communities of communities um but you know i think one of the one of the th- things that was that caused so many of the of the problems um that quote unquote web to social media caused was um you know, pre the Industrial Revolution, we still had, you know, there was, you know, the individual, the family, um, the the village, the local town, the county, um, you know, you had these kind of like ascending um, sizes of sort of groupings and subgroupings. Um, and, uh, you know, ideas would kind of percolate up from the individual level um, to the, you know, to the village level, to the town level, to the to the nation state level, to the to the global level, you know, these things would still percolate up but there was there was a bit more of um there was a bit more friction let's say um 
And what happened really when when these first social media platforms came along is they basically said, okay, forget all these um, intermediary structures. Um, you are now, as an individual participant, you are publishing to the wide ocean of the whole world. And like that was the big promise. It was like the global village. Like you can share, one person can share something and it can reach the global village um, in, you know, it, within seconds, which was true. Um, but it was also actually terrifying. Um, and uh, and really undermined our sense of um, I, I, a sense of kind of like yeah belonging in um, in communities and a sense of like actually being able to have an impact in a small area around us. So I think we'll see um, a, a renaissance of maybe more um, um, you know m- multiple levels at which things can be influenced and you know things will bu- bubble up from small scenes um and they they could bubble up to the national the global or 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 scene you know i i know i think we're probably moving towards the end of nation states but anyway that's a whole other <laughs> podcast <laughs> <laughs> um um yeah 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 totally so okay i think um all right we've done basically an hour on on this stuff now so i think um we'll just step back a little bit um i wanted to talk about um like what well, I mean, obviously you you came into doing Endless off the back of like a pretty long and successful career making music yourself and performing, especially. Um, I guess that Endless came out of the your the uh, the tools that you developed for performing. I think is that fair to say? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I just I want to I want to join a few dots with um previous episodes of this podcast. Um, we I had Debridge on and we talked about obviously drum and bass and you first came into music via moving shadow so um just to ask you something completely different to what we've been talking about like Mm. what what got you into drum and bass well uh, i think the first um actually you know one of the yeah those um what were they called the the compilations with msx no the moving shadow compilations of the right, right, right. Yeah, you get for a quid. They do these ones you can get for a quid, and they're basically like, um, I mean, genius, genius marketing campaign, really. Um, because I was just totally into. You know, I was waiting for these one pound CDs to come out, and it basically it got a bunch of teenagers into into drum and bass because um, that's the sort of thing that a teenager could teenager could afford. Um, so that was probably my, one of my first points of contact. And but but even before then, like the you know the the rave the kind of tape packs that came out of all these big raves like fantasia and obsession and um like helter skelter and dreamscape and you know they had i remember in the kind of mid 90s i think where i really got drawn into it um because you know my my kind of like musical i think it's a frontal cortex isn't it that um that you it's when that's forming that you're really open to um, falling in love with music, basically. Um, and that, for me, happened. It kind of started in 1992, went through till sort of 1998. And the the pace at which um, the, uh, you know, electronic dance music um, evolved was just, it was just so, you know, there were just new sounds that you'd never, ever heard, uh, new structures, new techniques, like every few months, you you know, pick up some rave some rave tape. It's just like, wow, I've never heard anything like that before. 
it's actually mad thinking about it now. Just the, just the volume of stuff which happens in that day. Yeah, it's so good. And I think like jung- the whole the whole jungle thing that really got me. I don't know. There was something because it felt like it was channeling some kind of like voodoo force um, <laughs> that that I I hadn't. You know, all that all that sort of yeah all the all this stuff the 1992-93 stuff had this like hands in the air whistle posse kind of vibe um which was amazing you know i was 12 so you know you're all um your imagination is just totally on fire um but then this like really kind of dark brooding jungle sound came along and these um production technical like the time stretch vocals and stuff like that there was something I, i don't know it felt like it was it awoke some wild force um that uh and and the just the way the brakes are being mashed up you know the just the, the rhythms were so compelling and it felt like they had um almost unplumbable depths to what could be done with it okay uh, <laughs> i mean it's it's funny you say that because i mean it, it, the way you just described it makes it, it, it sort of um it makes total sense with the, the music that you subsequently made actually and i it just yeah completely uh made sense to me in that context as you were as you were describing that so um so how did you get from i guess you know listening to music and then eventually getting a you know releasing on moving shadow onto the kind of pathway that eventually led you know to through to sort of software design and and then into what you're doing now like i mean i i don't want to i don't want to get too deep in the weeds in this but like is was there a kind of like i guess was what were the, the key moments i guess and then was there a kind of like um like a common like principle or sort of pattern that you could identify that it's kind of led you on that path mm, yeah common principle i mean i yeah i would if anyone knows please let me know <laughs> what the common theme is <laughs> just so i know what's coming next <laughs> um uh yeah I, I don't know i think um well i i always i love to get to the bottom of everything and when I get to the bottom of it, I'm just like, that's not enough. <laughs> I want to go further in something else. So um, that no, that's that's definitely a kind of pattern in terms of like how who I am and how I'm built. <laughs> that's definitely a strong pattern there. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, so my first musical experience was playing the violin. Um, and that was a very, it's a very physical thing, you know, with the violin, you move your body, music happens, you stop moving your body, music stops. Uh, so that was my frame of reference for music, um, as of like the age of five. Um, and then when I was a teenager, I fell in love with electronic music. But when I first heard that, when I first heard these tapes, um, I had no idea of where this music was coming from. And I thought they were improvising it. I thought this music was somehow being performed. Um, and of course it wasn't, you know, it was, it was being produced in studios and then pressed onto vinyl and DJed. So I was like, oh, okay, well, maybe, well, I'll get into that. Um, so I got to DJing and like modified my turntables and broke them. And I was a shit DJ because I didn't know, I just had no idea how to select tunes. That wasn't... Uh, what, that, how did you how did you modify your, your turntables? I just went to um, Tandy um, Radio Shack, uh, RIP, and um, bought like uh, like a um, just a switch like a reverse so i put in a reverse switch and then i put in like an extra um pot so i could, I could go from like zero to 100 percent. all right yeah okay yeah yeah 
I mean, it's pretty, yeah, it's pretty basic stuff, but obviously they weren't, well, they were cheap turntables and they weren't designed to be modified. So right. they died pretty quickly after that. Um, but that was the first step on a, on a fairly prolific uh, series of like instruments you essentially built, right? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I, th- I didn't really, I didn't start really building um, instruments until, so I then found, I, I, I kind of got in, and out of DJing fairly quickly and, and into producing. Cause that's, that's where, uh, you know, that's, that's a complete wormhole and it is almost a bottomless pit of how far you can go down that plumbing the depths. Um, so that kind of kept me entertained for, uh, the best part of a decade. Um, well, I don't know, no, it was five years. And then I started, it was right around the end, around the end of the nineties, early two thousands, there were, um, this kind of like the VST space race uh, was just getting going, and um, you know the VST plugin standard had just been launched, um, and there were all these kind of like free plugins you could find, like weird soundware. You know, I could, I could dial up on a dial-up modem and find some weird sound mangling thing and download it, and uh, and I was trying, I was just on the search for like what's the weirdest sound you can make. Um, and after a while, I then ran into this um, basically these kind of digital modular pack packages that allowed you to actually make new ways to mangle sounds and i was just like yeah this is for me this is totally for me um and uh so i guess on a kind of background thread to just improving my production chops i was just diving deeper and deeper into things like native instruments reactor um starting out just building really simple tool like toys and effects and then i just built this kind of ever-growing machine which evolved into this thing called the flow machine which is basically a live looping instrument um with synths and effects and um you know i can loop any source into it um and that kind of um spawned a few plugin products which i teamed up with native instruments to do um and they did you know did reasonably well um and Basically, the the money that I made from that, I ploughed into starting Endless, and the basically the way the the Endless workflow is pretty much lifted out of the Flow Machine. Um, uh, I mean, obviously, yeah, simplified a lot, but pretty much everything you could do with the Flow Machine, you can do in Endless, give or take a few things. And there's a whole much obviously there's a whole bunch of stuff um, that the Flow Machine couldn't do, like all the internet web connectivity stuff yeah sure so let me ask you um like it sounds like from what you've been saying that that maybe you felt a little bit constrained by making records per se yeah right okay so tell (laughs) tell me tell me about that tell me about how uh, because you know you've released a lot of records and you've you know done albums for you know playing you and warp so i mean tell me about why you felt I guess, well, did you feel unsatisfied? Is that the way of putting it? Yeah, well, it's also, well, at least I found probably something to do with my perfectionism and um, just wanting to plumb the depths of everything um, that I found that with producing and writing tracks, there was almost, there was no end. Um, And to you know to how far you could go with tweaking things and i just obsess i'd spend weeks obsessing over tracks and feel so stuck um and i, I just i don't i don't think that way of being musical 
I don't know. I mean, like, <laughs> like nowadays, I do kind of fantasize about. Well, I, I mean, I've got a whole like system for composition that I would love to have the time to build someday, but maybe in my next life. Um, but I, yeah, I, it just didn't. I don't think I sat well with um, composing and writing. You know, I remember, for example, like. When I moved to Berlin, two thousand and seven, like Chris Clark, as in Clark, <laughs> uh, for, formerly formerly Chris Clark, now just Clark, um, he moved there at the same time, and he was literally just around the corner from me. Um, so we'd have we had breakfast, we'd have like a you know a sort of lazy Berlin brunch, um, like one or two days at, um, at least every week, and sort of chew the fat about this, that, and the other. Um, but his, you know, his approach to writing music was just so different from mine. I remember, like, the Warp album I did, there were was 10 tracks on it. And I think in the whole period um, of writing that album, I think I maybe wrote 15 tracks. Whereas Chris, um, he was just pumping out a track, like, every day or two. You know, maybe not, maybe not you know, not all finished. And the ones ended up on his albums, he'd then go and... and dig deep into and really kind of refine but you know his process he was just you know he was he was and is a, just a voracious composer um and uh, you know he's kind of develops a compositional muscle <laughs> um and i just you know i don't know i i didn't i never managed to develop that way that skill i suppose like the composer's skill which is just doing stuff and doing stuff and doing stuff and not getting stuck and if you get stuck go and do something else and then come back to it i was never any good at that okay and is that just an inherent thing in the way that your musicality kind of is within you or is it is there something else um yeah i don't know it's probably more just a character trait <laughs> i think um and i think also that it was just much better expressed in writing software um how's that how how do you see those two things as being different well writing software takes a lot more you have to kind of propagate a bunch of ideas and concepts um and you have to plan things out and you you do have to um you have to solve problems that kind of have well if you if something isn't working you know that there is a solution out there. You just need to go and hunt down the the way it's not, you know, why it's not working. Whereas, you know, compositionally, if something's not working, um, I mean, who knows? Um, and who knows why it's not working? Um, and you have to, you have to use a, a certain type of intuition, I think, to solve like compositional problems because they don't really have a solution. Because what the well, solution? There's, there's no correct answer. That's for sure. Exactly, yeah, and it just sort of feels right. And I think I like, like you know, one of the things that I really like. If if you know, if I kind of get burnt out or overwhelmed or something like you know, if you know, if like world, the events in my life are, um, are challenging me. I find it quite therapeutic to just go like, okay, well, I'm going to write. I'm going to code something. I'm going to build something. Um, because you, there's something quite, I don't know, something weirdly therapeutic about it. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I mean, okay. So is that sort of analogous to, um, 
maybe I'm reaching for something here, but is that analogous to the kind of classic, like you have to suffer for your art paradigm? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Well, I is, it, is, it, is, it, is it the same kind of thing, do you know what I mean, being expressed, do you, would you say? Or is it, is it something? Yeah, I mean, it's, de- it's definitely a creative, ex- they're both definitely creative expressions, for sure. Right. Yeah. Um, and I don't, yeah, I don't think it's like, uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, they both, well, both of them have like an element of creative expression and an element of production. Um, you know, both both of them. I think that's what that's why I kind of like both, but I lean towards software. Um, I think I think another way, another thing I like about software is its output um, is an opportunity to do something else. Whereas once a piece of music is done, do you know what I think? That's I think that is actually it. Is that whenever I finish a piece of music, like all those emotions that I experienced in that process just suddenly froze up in a way because it's it's done now um and i sort of realized that nobody would probably ever experience those sonic structures with the same level of intensity as i did while i was writing it because that's what happens when you write music like you will always feel your music more intense i mean I, i i don't know unless you like elgar and write a cello concerto in which case people fawn over it for a hundred years and maybe they do feel it more intensively more intensively than you do but um with software at least there's an opportunity that um people will do new stuff with it in ways that you couldn't even predict and it does feel like getting to the end of a piece of uh, quote unquote end uh you know finishing a piece of software is kind of a new beginning whereas finishing a piece of music I, maybe I'm missing something here, but it always feels like an end. Yeah, yeah, so that that makes total sense. So, um, but your your relationship with performance is 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 different, I guess, because well, I guess the application of of um, you know, that kind of software writing process was applicable to performance in a way, was it? Yeah, well, at, at least like yeah, when I finish the software, I could then go out and just um, you know, shout at people um, in front of an audience and loop it and mangle it and, and <laughs> right, you exactly. know, smash some crazy um, drums over it. You know, um, so how, I mean, how do you? How I guess what I'm getting at is like, like what, like what, um, what function does performance fill in your? Like, is it something different? I guess, like, because um, you, you know, talking about differences between software writing and, and composition but like well, where does performance fit into that kind of overall you know expression creative expression yeah i think it it does actually remind me of of something that i'm really into that i think is a theme that kind of tracks through everything is that i i like everything yeah i like everything i do to sort of also be the beginning of something it's like everything i do invites a response uh, and I think that's what's really great about well performance, but particularly improvised performance, um, because you know I but by the time I'd really got up to speed with the flow machine, I'd got comfortable with what it could do, and I got comfortable with the the kind of vibe that happened in rooms when you showed up with a bunch of kit to improvise. Um, uh, you know, I started I I show up with you know I'd literally go on stage with zero idea of what I was going to do at all. And I felt that so liberating. Um, it sounds terrifying, frankly. Yeah, well, that's the thing. But it's sort of 
because at first it was i mean particularly in around when i was like touring the warp album i felt this immense pressure that i basically i'd managed to you know i'd snagged a record deal with my dream record label and um i felt like i needed to do justice to it and i felt like you know i was kind of being torn in two directions one was like just doing a really slick live performance that you know would hit every time um and this real urge to just throw all caution to the wind um and eventually the latter won out um but there was you know there was a long time between that where i'd show up to the you know i'd sort of been programmed in between two djs and what you can do as an improviser just does not stand up like on the terms of what a dj set is an improvised electronic set just will never be as good as that it will never be as compelling as that on those terms um you mean kind of like i guess functional in a kind of dance floor sense in that setting is that what you mean by that yeah exactly functional and just like well produced because you know if you're just like smashing a few beats and loops together um it's just not going to sound as good as a well as a track that people that someone's put a lot of thought into um arranging and producing right just in the kind of sonic kind of um, technically good thing yeah classically technically but then I, basically the once i kind of really just fully lent into that improvised approach and just you know just showed up and I, I was who i was and what happened was what happened um it was the the most liberating thing and i kind of like that's the thing particularly with endless for example that i would i really that's always been the thing that I've wanted to bring to the world. Like, out of all the experiences that I've had in my life, um, that is the one, that that pure sense of flow um, when, you, you know, you're just... You disappear into the controls and you're just there doing music and, um, like, bouncing off the people in, in the room. Um, and I feel like, out of, yeah, out of all the experiences in my life, that's the one that I really want to bring to the world so that's kind of what's really behind the the motivation for endless so could you give me some examples of any like particularly memorable good like a good or bad uh improvised performances that you've made over the years <laughs> um the one that i remember there was i did a show in like odense i think it's pronounced like orden orden or something in, Den- in denmark um uh Oh yeah, yep. I can't really say much more about it, but it was just good. There was a vibe. I managed to hit, <laughs> I, you know, something clicked, and it was it just like was on fire. I think at some point I ended up kind of being like carried across the room by a bunch of people. It was it was wild. It was wild. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've been you know I've been a few a few shows like that where something is just uh, you know all the all the stars aligned. And um, this kind of like intense um, sense of like togetherness and being in tune with everyone in the room, and yeah, I'm trying to think of other good. It's all such a long time ago now. <laughs> there must be bad, some bad ones. ones. Oh god, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. Frankly, more bad ones than good ones. <laughs> but maybe that's maybe that's just yeah. I don't know. Um, me justifying the fact that I'm not really doing that much anymore. <laughs> um, uh, Give me an example of a notably like disastrous experience. I mean, the, the worst ones are when the kit when the kit breaks. 
Um, oh, right. That, uh, yeah, and there's a couple where I'd, like, forgotten a key bit of equipment and I literally just haven't been able to play, but, I mean, I guess everybody's done that at some point. Um, I did a couple of, like, kind of, you know, brand collaboration things, and those were always toe-curling um, because... They were just, you know, you're just so kind of um, complete, this complete tension between, um, they're just like, yeah, no, no, we just want you to come here and be you and just do you. But could you just, no, no, okay, well, no, no. Have you got a different you? <laughs> it's like, yeah, those those ones are yeah. not fun. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, so the last area i want to cover is one that i've been repeatedly asking people about and that is the album format as we've been talking about um like the potential future of you know, the music industry and music consumption for one of a better word i think maybe you're going to have a slightly different answer to this than most other people have had so yeah how do you feel about the album format now as someone who's made albums obviously uh on notable labels like how do you see it now I and mean, has it i mean i presume it's been important to you over time but but where is it now do you think well i think it's i mean the the thing that has always been important about albums will continue to be important and that is um they're designed as kind of immersive experiences really um and they you know they're they're quite they're a great sort of outpouring um of personal expression and um, and just all you know the effort if you want to you know as a as a label or you know or an artist of yourself releasing if you want to make a um a good go of an album there's a ton of stuff that you, of other stuff you have to do behind the scene you know the artwork design um crafting the campaign making sure that you've got a real kind of message to go along with it all all that stuff it's a it's a ton of work um and i think that those kind that kind of structure is always going to be important and like no sort of you know live collaborative real-time music creation jamming vibing platform um is ever going to kill off you know like endless it's not going to kill off the album um i think what it um what it could do is um provide a new context for almost like storytelling um as creative process um, so you know, albums could um, emerge out of a process on Endless, for example. Well, they already have; they do. Um, that you know, there's a there's a lot of people on Endless who um, have worked that way, you know, quite successfully. Um, I think, yeah, I think these kind of like, <clears throat> you know, the, these sort of experiences where an artist, like metaphorically, kind of stands up after the dinner and like ding 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 pings a glass and sort of <clears throat> clears their throat and straightens their tie and says this is my thing um uh like that's 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 good for musicians and it's good for audiences i think um because that that sort of that weight of premeditation and that that weight of sweat comes over in whatever's made um i think in terms of you know a collection of music that is you know 10 tracks long or however you know how many tracks you've got on your album um i think we'll see that 
that at least the form the format of those kind of like keystone artistic expressions will broaden i would say um and you know they already have really if you want to do a successful album campaign as, as i was saying earlier like you, you have to kind of do something um oh it's an album yeah but do you remember they did this thing around it or that thing on or you know it's got a concept behind it or there's a tour behind it um yeah i don't know um kind of trailing off a bit here but i think that <laughs> the experience like the 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 things that people offer around these kind of like thunderclap moments of creative expression uh will broaden beyond um just a collection of 10 tracks and you know maybe like a limited edition colored vinyl of you know so and so i think that will continue to broaden yeah i mean i, I absolutely absolutely agree um and it'll be very interesting to see how that manifests as as discussed so let just let me ask you about the making of your albums on planet mew and warp like i actually had had machine drum on who uh released an album on planet mew and he was um uh not complaining um commenting on mike paradinus and his a and r technique so <laughs> i wonder um I wonder what were the, what were the two, what were the differences? Let's say, let's put it like that. What were the differences in in making albums for those two labels? Well, oh, yeah. I mean, I, I in a way, I still kind of feel a bit bad because I did I did um, promise that the the album that ended up being uh, coming out on Warp, I did promise it to Mike. Um, That's exactly what Travis said as well when he moved to the industry. <laughs> yes, yeah. So I mean, I you know I. Um, there's still part of me that feels like, yeah, I mean, that was a bit of a shitty thing to do. Um, but, uh, you know, there was still, actually, we did, you know, we did do a bit of a deal. Like, um, you did get um, a split and they did get like a co-release. Um, but uh, no, I, I, I've, I, have, I have mad respect for Mike. Um, and he has that kind of, this just, I don't know, this wild longevity. I mean, he's really... He's so he's so OG, um, and he's so kind of like individually committed to, um, you know, Mew Mew is really an artistic Mew. I would say is Mike's artistic expression, and not not that not that he's you know I, I never felt like he really meddled with what I was doing artistically, but in a way, Mew is a kind of meta artistic expression. You know, he has. Um, he goes with his gut on his, uh, you know, A&R decisions. Um, he goes with what he likes um, and then he just really gets behind what he likes and he does it again, again and again, like really regularly, um, unremittingly, which is, I mean, it's, I mean, yeah, I'm, yeah, mad respect, mad respect. Um, um, with you know, Warp, Warp is is a much more um, you know it's a it's a it's an operation, um, and uh, you know at the time it was Steve Beckett who um, kind of drove signing me, um, and now but now Steve's um, kind of stepped back and uh, Kev's running it, um, and so I don't I don't know um, how things operate nowadays, but you know there's a there's a team there's like. 20 people involved at least um with all the various different arms of what they were doing um so yeah it's it's a mu- it's a much more professional operation i would say um 
and they i'd say you know as a team they kind of have this more sort of hive mind and uh, through that through the hive mind they make really amazing curatorial decisions i would say um me notwithstanding <laughs> <laughs> well my question was going to be like um did, did it did that affect like the way the the two records like turned out like musically yeah, I mean, there was definitely some tracks which I'm really thankful retrospectively that that Warp quite heavily put their um, foot down and said, no, we're not releasing it with that track on. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, Mike was just like, yeah, fuck it. I mean, uh, you know, get get that out. And they were not, I mean, those tracks definitely would have skewed the album into something more niche, I would say. Um, not that it wasn't that niche anyway but but kind of yeah i don't i don't know um i think warp were much more uh they had you know they had their eye on what would actually go down well uh i think mike was like much more i don't care um no not no not they didn't care but it's, it's more like interested in making statements interested in really just surfacing um kind of raw raw um un- uncompromising ideas you know like warp i could you know apart from yeah i mean i couldn't have seen warp releasing like um all the snares albums for example i just could i just couldn't see it and those yeah those kind of always being on mew was just such a great express well it's such a great expression of like snares is completely unique um everything i mean i it's such a wildly unique guy you know creative um voice um that i probably would have been too constrained by something like warp makes sense i mean just having a bigger operation with a you know a keener eye on the bottom line by definition yeah it will have an effect like that won't it i guess yeah yeah definitely so just finally, extremely annoying question, but um, just give me a few uh, albums that you like. Not not your favourite albums necessarily, but... <laughs> albums that you like. Uh, so the last album, I have started buying vinyl again. Oh, okay. um, uh, the largest, last album I bought was... Um, it's kind of like synth jazz fusion... Um, they're called Trioritet. Trioritet. It's like a... I think they're German. It's, um, it's album called Algo. It's just... Um, it kind of had a sort of acid jazz vibe. I'm not usually into that kind of stuff, uh, but a track of theirs popped off on my popped up on my Discover Weekly actually, um, and uh, I kind of dug in, listened to the album, and then bought it on vinyl. Uh, so that was good. Um, best I did best album in the last decade for me has to be uh, Visible Cloaks Reassemblage. Um, I just think it's I, don't, I yeah I don't know. It's like well, the way I've described it to people before, it's, um, you know, Xenakis told us or, or set out a, um, a roadmap for, like, how we could treat music composition as architecture. Um, and that led to all this... Cra- like, granular synthesis um, is is basically um, a sort of real, a real-world application of Xenakis' theory. Um, but it's very abstract and it's very formal. And I've, to me... Um, visible cloaks reassemblage is kind of those buildings 
um, but that have actually been buildings for a hundred years and people have lived in them and um, you know generations have grown up and died and told their stories and built their culture and you know the weather has beaten the walls and it's got lichen on it and to me that album sounds like that it's got all that nostalgia um, but it's got all that kind of crazy sort of formalism um, that I like Zanakis for so yeah that's really good um, what else do, how many how many do you want give me one give me one more that'll one be, more good. Yeah, um, I'm, try- I'm trying to go for ones that just aren't really obvious um, what else uh, do you know what I will actually um, Lone's last album yep I can't I can't remember what it's actually called now. It was about um, neither can I, but it's good. It's so good, and uh, yeah, it's so good. Um, I there's something about that. It's got the a bit of a sort. He's kind of he started out with this sort of throwback ravey kind of sound, um, but with really interesting chord structures, and it's just evolved. Um, he kind of kept with that sound and maybe sort of veered tried some kind of lo-fi hip-hoppy tinges to that um and then sort of come back and it's got these kind of like trancey elements and yeah i don't know i I just think it's i think it's really good (laughs) i like it it's got a good beat (laughs) (laughs) yeah okay well listen man thank you so much for doing this it's been been fun Thank you. Yeah, thanks for um, uh, listening to my uh, um, slightly elongated rants about everything. I dive deep. (laughs) Yeah, that was Tim Exile and a really interesting conversation getting into some stuff that we haven't covered too much of on the show before. Um, It was really interesting to get his take on the kind of bird's eye view, I guess, of Web3 and crypto and how it relates some music and you know the potential reasons why some people really have a kind of visceral dislike of it seems a little bit irrational on the surface but I guess it just hits some people's boxes in a way which they can't help um so before we go just a little bit of release news we have on who whom this Friday who whom being the kind of techno offshoot of hot flush the debut release with us from Anna Cost, who is really exciting emergent producer who I've been tipping for a little while now but it's the first time we've had her on the label uh, she's released on Soma amongst other things in the last 12 months so um yeah her debut EP on Who Whom is called The Very End of You it's four tracks and it's really really cool stuff so um yeah check that out it's out on Friday the 15th um hotflush.bandcamp.com to get that obviously all the rest of the stuff on hot flush and affiliated labels too i will be playing a show in berlin this friday it's a fundraiser for ukraine relief charities it's with the it's bigger than crew so um yeah prince charles in berlin friday night alongside eric cloutier and claire morgan and other djs so it's going to be a lot of fun Hope to see some of you down there. Uh, I'm going to bang out the um, 145 BPM techno, maybe. But yeah, should be fun and obviously in a good cause too. So um, yeah, we'll be good. Anyway, I think that's about it for this week. 
just uh, yeah, leave us a review or a rating wherever you're listening to this. Grab us in the discords if you want to give me any abuse about NFTs, perhaps, or um, <laughs> you could do that on Twitter at Scuba Official as well. Instagram also Scuba Official. And finally, follow that Spotify playlist if you want to check some of the music, including uh, some of Tim's album picks towards the end there. Um, I think that's it. So I'll catch you same time, same place next week on the next episode of the Not A Diving Podcast. Thank you. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.